Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 211. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay, how are you doing today? Good, Derek. Back again. I love this. Thank you for having me back. Well, the fans seem to want it. I mean, they, they like Mike as well, but and they also seem to like when we disagree on things. So we'll see how we do today, Jay. No, I don't know about that. See what I did there? See how I... See, I disagreed. That was no, not good enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was sorry. (laughs) You're kind of setting it up. That's very, very funny, Jay. The audience will be laughing. I'm so funny. Yeah. You know, what wasn't funny yesterday is Jerome Powell. There was a meme going around with him taking a selfie in front of a a big red board of red uh, tickers (laughs) going down. Yeah. Uh, Somebody take his mic away. What is going on with him? Uh, But no, he testified in front of Congress. I think he hasn't wraps up today in front of the house, but Jay, uh, let me just mention quick uh, to use a movie quote that escalated quickly. Jay, what happened to the Fed funds futures? Like what is, what is it even saying we're going to have now? Yeah. I mean, look, uh, uh, there's a lot of very standard language that we've heard for the last you know year and what he, and when he testified, but I think the thing that took the market, by surprise was when he hinted he may increase the rate of change on the federal fund rate, right? So everybody was, I think everybody was assuming 25 basis points in March and then in May. Well, he said he, you know, he wouldn't count out having to increase that rate of change. And all of a sudden, the market started hearing, uh uh-oh, 50 basis points in March instead of 25. We haven't beat inflation yet. We have to really, uh, you know, we really got to we really got to attack this. And I think that freaked out the market a little bit. Right. The thought of 50 bips. uh, I I mean, I wasn't even considering it until the market started reacting this way. So I think it's a thing that pushed the market down a little bit in February. Then we got, you know, folks saying, well, uh, you know, you got Federal Reserve members and governors saying, 25 is probably fine market like that in March, the beginning of March. And now we've got Powell saying we may have to increase the rate of change. And I think the market is reacting, you know, poorly to that, uh, that, that, uh, that verbiage, those, that wording. Jerome Powell wants you to lose your job, your house wants everything to be more, actually he wants things to be less expensive and he wants the markets to crater. I don't know. I mean, well, let's just put this in perspective. You mentioned the market was not expecting 50 bips or 50 basis points. Jay, the Fed funds futures at the start of his testimony, 30% probability or, or there around uh, of a 50, pay, 50 basis point rise where they would go from four and a half, four and three quarters to five, five and a quarter. And if you look further out on the, the Fed funds futures curve and you imply the, the future rates by those future prices, I mean, all right, nine and a half percent probability, six to six and a quarter by the September meeting. That's September 20th, 35 percent prob, five and three quarters to six and 42 percent, five and a half to to five and three quarters. I'll just round it out about 12 percent, five and a quarter, five and a half. That escalated quickly for sure. And to give you some perspective, I think you mentioned this, Jay, you know, a week ago, uh, the, the five and a half to five and three quarters or a month ago was 3.6% probability. Now it's 42%. So bottom line is the market did not expect this. 
They quickly adjusted. And now, I mean, a year ago, who would have thought we'd be potentially at a 6% Fed funds, right? So let's, let's, let's hold on. I think that, not that you're burying the lead, you said it. So right now, the probability, the market has a probability of us being at five and three quarters to 6% on the Fed funds rate in September, right? That chance right now is like 45%. Is that right? Yeah. If you, yeah. If you add the probabilities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So 45% at least five and three quarters to six in September. So that's high. Like, I don't, you know, the market, this is, you know, that's going to, that's going to definitely, uh, uh, cause that's going to leave a mark, Jim. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. Yes. That did escalate quickly, brick. You got it. So fed funds goes to six. Does that mean two year maybe goes to seven? We see, you know, three, four, five gets, um, you know, six and a half, seven, two years, six. I don't know. And it comes down to, you know, we talked about it last week, Jay, the, the 10 year and, and further out is really a reflection of what the nominal growth is going to be in the economy. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we hadn't even planned on talking about this, but we sort of had to just mention it because, um, markets have a certain disposition and this definitely upset the, uh, the apple core, so to speak, right? Apple cart. Yeah. Yep. There we go. Yep. And when is the March meeting, right? The week of the 22nd? 20, do I have that date right? Yeah, set your calendar, March 22nd. March 22nd is the is the, is the meeting. Yep, okay, two weeks. Get, get your popcorn. All right, so the other thing that came up, and uh, uh, we always like questions from listeners, and uh, Jay, you want to take us into this topic? Uh, we had a couple, uh, couple good questions around the idea of dividends and flat markets and where returns come from, right? Yeah, yeah. So, this, so we were asked uh, uh, by Bill uh, to discuss, you know, dividends in portfolios. If you're going to have uh, a period of time where the market may not have appreciation and may be flat, and is it important to consider that in the way you build portfolios? And uh, so that that was a question that came in. I think it's listen. It's a really good question. It's a topic we've been talking about now since what November, December. Maybe not so much on the the podcast, but it's definitely one we've been talking about with our clients that, yeah, look, we still have as advisors, right? We still have goals to meet for our clients, right? People's uh, bills don't change just because the market's got a flat year, right? People still need to generate cash and generate growth uh, and income out of their portfolio one way or another. And it's an important question. And so, Derek, you've put together a little bit of, um, you want to hop into kind of the data you put together around you know, what dividends make up of growth? Yeah, and I found this. Luckily, uh, I didn't actually have to do the analysis. The Hartford Group had posted something, so I'm going to borrow from theirs. And over, you know, from 1930 through the end of 2021, when you think about what makes up a return in an average year on, on an annualized basis, and so you could have price go up, but you could also have dividends and 40% of the return has come from dividends from 1930 to, to the end of 2021. Now, that varies, Jay, by uh, certainly by the climate. We look at the 1970s where the market, the price in the market, was only up a, a few percentage points. But the total return was, I don't know if it was six, but it was um, you know above five. 
of the total return was made up from dividends. 2020s, 12%, 2010, 17%. You know, so it, it sort of varies. 1980s was about 28%, but the 60s and 70s certainly. Now, of course, we have more growth companies that don't pay as much dividends. They're doing more buybacks. This is just dividends. Uh, but Jay, I mean, in a flat market, if let's say you had four to five percent in returns, in theory, you'd still make four or five percent, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. If that's what your dividends were, right? And I think it brings up an interesting point about yields, right? I'm not sure if you're leading into that, but I'll let you continue your thought if that's going to roll into that. It wasn't, but let's go there. I mean, what, I mean, the dividend yield right now is, by the way, the S and P is only about one point seven percent. You know, we can round up to two. I know, but higher dividend stocks, which have a, a value bet. I mean, Jay, we we run a model that looks at dividends and let's say uh, we're right about what 4% right now on, on the average of what the dividends are. And then I'll, I'll kind of, you know, let me tee you up here. I'll let you talk about this one. Well, the, the thing is as a, as an options advisor, right, we're always trying to do what people do, but then do it a little better, right? How can we <laughs> apply options and what can we swap out where we can kind of, you know, focus in on what our goal is. And you're right in, in this portfolio of stocks that we run that has on average four, four and a half percent dividends, stocks, like a basket of 20 stocks. We then also sell options to generate another, say, 1% a quarter, shooting for like a cash generation target, again, if all things go well, of uh, between 7 8 9% per year. And so, you know, you can have a flat market, but still produce returns and yields for your clients that need cash um, by, you know, running a dividend plus option strategy. We actually call that a dividend plus strategy. And they can always read. People can always reach out to you, Derek, for more information about that. But uh, I, I would I would say that you know for for people that are trying to balance between capturing potential upside movements of the market, and as a reminder, Derek, right, markets move up seventy percent of the time on a calendar basis. They are positive, uh, so it does make sense to have exposure to that. But uh, there are some times when it's not going to go up, but you, and you still have to generate cash. So, you know, using a dividend model that has an option overlay uh, is definitely a choice that uh, we've seen um, uh, additional popularity uh, this year because of, you know, the potential sideways market that we may have. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's right. I mean, and those types of companies. So, I mean, we don't we don't necessarily pick markets. That's why we always say we buy, we hedge. Uh, and if you miss the best two days of the year in any given year, you degrade your returns by quite a bit. But yeah, there are di higher dividend stocks are more of a a value oriented. I don't want to say it's a it's a value let's say approach, but yeah, I mean you have stocks that pay dividends, uh, and the higher the dividend, they tend to be lower in price because if they run up too much. Unless the company, you know, increasingly increases their dividends, and a lot of those companies do. Most companies, dividend payers, they actually are, are pretty good about increasing the the dividend year over year. And then, you know, you layer on top a little bit of uh, you know premium selling and and those types of things. Jay, I will say too that there are markets that have gone nowhere, and you know, you mentioned uh, Bill and and some of the folks who asked the question. They, they brought up Japan. I mean, Japan, I don't think they've exceeded the highs of the 80s. I'd have to double check. And usually I know that. So I'm sorry I don't have the, the Japanese Nikkei index data on the top of my head. 
But I do have the the Spain index, the Ibex 35. And Jay, I know you're following this minute by minute. Oh yeah, don't don't miss a day of the old Ibex 35. <laughs> it's interesting though. I mean, look, th- this has gone up and gone down over the last you know 24 years or so. Yeah, something like. But since 1998, if you bought it uh, one of these months in 1998, I forget which month. It's the same price as it is today. So think about that. From 1998 to today, uh, March of 2023, the index value is the same. Now, you can't buy an index, of course, uh, but you could buy a makeup of of the stocks or maybe an ETF or something that makes up the, the Spain IBEX 35. And essentially, you would have gotten the dividends every year, but no price appreciation. So, yeah, I mean, markets can move sideways. And Jay, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen next five years, 10 years, but I'll I'll give you a little, and the audience really, a little bit of flavor on what I call uh, where returns come from. And without overcomplicating this, when you think about if you end a year, you end a year with an earnings per share on the index, let's say. So you have an earnings per share, you have some multiple of those earnings so if your earnings are 200 and you trade uh, you know, 20 times, you're trading at an index level of 4,000. And so for the next year, if you're going to have growth or a decline in an index, you say, okay, you have to grow revenues. You have some margin which grows or, or falls against those revenues. And then you come to your earnings. You have companies that are buying back stock or like in the, in the 2000s, you had a lot of growth companies that were issuing stock. And when share counts come down, the existing owners uh, have get a little bit of bump on earnings per share because there's less shares to do the math. And then there's a PBE multiple. Without you know con- conflating all this stuff, trying to do it, you know, you and I in a podcast. Ninety nine to two thousand eleven, the multiple went from twenty eight point four to thirteen, and markets for that decade. The total return only averaged about you know zero point six percent. I think I have more than a decade there, but and then you look Jay at you know let's say ninety nine to uh, uh, to oh nine you know twenty eight point four PE to thirteen point nine. We just went through. I mean ninety nine to oh nine. We went from uh, uh, where's the, where's the good one here? Here we go. So eighty nine to ninety nine PE went from fourteen and a half to twenty eight point four. Jay, we ended the year at uh, you know right around. A seventeen point eight four PE, and the reason why I'm bringing this up and throwing a bunch of numbers is, some people look at this and say, "Okay, what has to happen over the next ten years for markets to really average significant double digit gains?" And the answer is, you would have to grow revenues a ton. You would have to—I shouldn't say a ton, but at, at a really good clip, your margins would have to increase. Or your PE would have to go from 17.84 to something much higher. Now, that doesn't mean that companies can't grow their margins. Margins have increased over the last decade. Uh, earnings continue to increase. Revenues, on average, go up, you know, three and a half, four percent a year. So I'll kind of stop there, Jay. But I do think there's, you know, there, there if you're of the mind and you're looking at stuff like this and saying, look, Maybe I don't see where the growth is going to come from over the next 10 years. Then you start to look at how can I generate 
a return on assets that are in there that are outside of price. Could be dividends, could be selling things like covered calls, could uh, be selling option premium, uh, something like you know the high probability option strategy we run. So, look, we don't know what's going to happen to markets, Jay, but um, we have had decades that have been flat, right? Sure, a- absolutely, and you know the, the, the so this doesn't we can simplify this, right? To understand that growth in the market has to come from, you know, either revenue going up or companies, you know, having better margins or the multiple on those earnings goes up, right? Those are the things that can kind of push a market higher. And I'm, I know I'm oversimplifying it and you get, I wish all of you could see the analysis that Derek sent me uh, uh, to talk through this, but it's, it's, I think it's great. And I think it, it does kind of point out that um, you know, over the next you know decade, if we run you know at any kind of pullback uh, on our numbers that we've seen over the last few uh, years, whether it's margins, you know, uh, companies are not as profitable, growth rate, you know, gets a little. I'm not going to say the word. I'm not. I don't want to say stagflation, but gets a little, you know, flattish, right? Three, four percent, uh, uh, or. Uh, or people start to feel that, hey, with treasuries at four or five percent, I don't need to take risk in the market and multiples come down, then you could have a period of, you know, some pretty flat stock market years. I'm not saying it won't look like the uh, the, the IBEX 35 with spikes and valleys along the way. <laughs> Again, I know nobody knows what that looks like, but like any market, right, you could have periods of optimism and, and periods of fear. Uh, listen, there's a good chance that you as an investor with your goals, right, you're going to be challenged if you're relying on the appreciation of U.S. stocks only, right? That may be challenging over the next uh, over the next decade if we have any kind of retracement in some of the data points that drove such a great decade uh, before 2022 started. Yeah, Jay, I'll, I'll take a counter. I'm going to go the opposite here. I'm, I'm actually going to be a contrarian on my previous take. So I'm going to argue with myself and say that, yeah, you may think a market might go sideways and you might think, okay, I need dividends. I need alternative appreciation. You know, like you said, maybe some short, short duration treasuries. But I mentioned 99 to 09, the markets were flat to down, negative 0.9% annualized return. But think about the drive there. Think about the car on the road from the end of 99 to 09, and you had the great financial crisis in 08, you had the tech crash in 2000. What if instead of thinking about, well, I need, I need a, a bunch of dividends in a quote-unquote flat decade, there were a lot of peaks and valleys, meaning I think this is the case for sort of the buy and hedge approach or a hedged equity approach where – if you don't take a massive, massive drawdown and you only take a certain amount, you will have missed out on a majority of that, that portion. You know, think about 08. Market was down at one point, like 55% uh, from the highs. If, let's say, you only took 10, 12, you know, something percent of that, well, then because you missed that and because the idea of being able to reinvest at lower levels you actually could take a flat decade and potentially, hypothetically, I'm throwing in a bunch of air quotes here, you could improve upon that return. So I think even within a flat decade, uh, if you think it's going to be flat, like the EKG of a rock, straight line, that's one thing. But if you think there's going to be a lot of peaks and values, or if you think markets are overvalued, 
it's still the case for hedging, Jay. I see what you did there, Derek. You took one of our strategies and explained why structurally it could actually provide a benefit in a flat market. That was that nicely done weaving that in. And listen, you're not you're not wrong about that, right? Avoiding the big drops uh, are the is the easiest way to participate in the growth, right? We always say volatility is kryptonite to a portfolio in general, right? I we we've done this math, and I know we're off topic a little bit, but we we've done the math of the difference of a portfolio that goes down 10 and up 11 is dramatically, uh, div- you know, if does that five years in a row versus a portfolio that says, let's say, drops 30 and makes 40. Believe it or not, you actually do better off of down 10, up 11 than down 30, up 40, right? Because the bigger swings, the math makes it harder to get back to even. And so you're right. If you could, uh, you know, put, you know, a collar, put like a damper or gutters or barriers, whatever you want to call it, where you funnel those returns to be a little more prescriptive, then yes, that now you start to make the case of why in today's environment, an options-based strategy that limits risk can definitely make sense in a sideways market. You're absolutely right. Sorry to agree, but you're right. All right. You're wrong. You're wrong. I don't know. Counterpoint, sir. Uh, let's, let's move to the economy on something that I, I really am tired of talking about, but it's a new way of looking at it that I think is really interesting. And the d- discussion I'm getting tired of is everyone going on CNBC and say, we're going to have a recession. We're going to have a recession. It starts June 31st. It's going to last until here. Are we going to have a soft landing, a hard landing, no landing? But I, there was an interesting chart and it's called hope. And, uh, you know, on, on past episodes, I think you and I have been talking about the economy and we've been talking about. Uh, a lot of people are saying, well, we can't have a recession when employment's high. And I've sort of made the point in just looking back, a lot of times employment's sort of the the thing that drops last, and you see that right before recessions. Uh, Michael Cantro put out a, I heard him on a podcast, but he also put out this graph. Uh, it's called a roadmap for how the economy responds to changes in rates. And he calls it HOPE. Hope stands, and H stands for housing, O stands for new orders, P stands for profits, and E stands for employment. And Jay, the argument is that housing is sort of the first thing to slow, and it's not only prices, but he looks at, uh, what is this, the NAIHB? I can't read that, but uh, probably an association of home builders, HB, I believe. And then orders, something like durable goods, and we've seen durable goods come down, new orders, We've seen profit expectations start to come down. We've seen some some year over year on the quarterly earnings come down, but employment is still holding up. Um, and and this it looks like this is sort of like what does he do? Negative twenty four months to to twenty four months after. So I think this is a really interesting way of looking at it, Jay. So the, if you, if you break up the kind of these four pieces of the economy, it's fair to say we've checked the box box on three of them, which is housing, new orders, and profits, all kind of coming down. And employment is the last kind of lagging indicator to hold on, right? To 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 keep us from the dreaded recession word. Um, you know, and when I and when I look at this chart that you that you provided, Derek, you know, if we're if you look at like say the 12 month range, it still shows you could have uh, you know a strong employment market even though you're 12 months into a declining economy. I think that's what it's telling us. And that's very normal. I'd say that is, you know, par for the course right now. And the fact that we still have a strong employment market, uh, 
you know, I'm not sure if this will be out by the time we get the jobs number on Friday, but I think uh, there's a lot of people watching because January was so, so good. Like the numbers are so high, so many more jobs created than expected. It's it's kind of caused a lot of this concern here within the market that that is holding on so tightly. And I do think that's one of those points that the Fed is holding on to that, hey, the 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 consumer is strong. The, the market is strong. It can handle us raising rates and fighting back uh, uh, inflation. It's a little contradictory because he's trying to slow the economy, but it's saying it's strong enough to handle this. Um, I, I'll finish up my point on this this last point. You know, this 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 chart that we're looking at, you could go out to, you know, 18, 20 months before you really see the reaction in the employment. And so, you know, the negative on this is like, hey, you know, we still could have another six to nine months of this kind of declining economy waiting for employment to roll over before the Fed feels that they've done their job. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And, you know, the other part of this is. Uh, and I think he mentioned this, it's the inverse in a recovery. So I think he said, I, I'm almost positive he said this, hope is, you know, housing sort of recovers first. And for recovery, you need housing to recover and then new orders and profits, then, then employment. And employment sort of makes sense too, because, you know, just inherently, and you and I have both worked at, at large companies before, sort of, you know, there's that feeling of, okay, things are starting to slow, you can spend a little bit less, and then eventually, you know, unfortunately, they may have to do some reductions, but then they're slow to hire uh, as things come on, you know, let's make sure things are okay, start to spend a little bit more money and the way budgets are set and things like that. But yeah, I, I like this. And I think it's, it's a good way of looking at things. Of course, we also don't know how bad, I mean, housing doesn't have to go down like it did in 08. It could just be slower, and slower means prices, could mean building, could mean the sentiment of of the home builders, and, and so on and so forth. But um, you and I also, Jay, have said in the past that in our experience, markets bottom before earnings, and earnings bottom before the economy. And I think another thing we looked at, and let me see who who put this out. I don't remember who posted this, but there's a source on here, Matt uh, Sermonero. Um, and what he did was he took a look at what are the returns one year after, you know, the bear market low is in. And then he looked at a year later, did the earnings grow or were they less than they were from the prior 12 months? And so Jay, if we use something like March of 09, 12 months later, so one year later, the market was up 69% off the lows. That's awesome. And you you assume that earnings must be doing really well. Well, earnings were actually down over the next year, 7%. March of 2020 was up 75%, the market, while earnings were down 15.2%. So, Jay, I think this sort of supports the thesis that you and I have been talking about is earnings don't bottom uh, first. They bottom second normally. Uh, yeah, the mar- right. So the market... Yeah, we've always said the market's a leading indicator and uh, the market's going to be ahead of these things and it will turn uh, before uh, uh, the economy turns. It's almost like, you know, it's darkest right before the dawn kind of a theory. And once, oh. uh, once you, you see, even though things are might be bad, you see a slowdown and a potential reversal in the decline of whether it's earnings or just the economy in general. 
the market's going to be all over that and say, okay, that's we've priced in the worst time to get long at this point and you know be prepared for the rebuilding. Some markets can do that. Stocks can do that, which is why you get these ups and downs, obviously. And you know it's very interesting. And we talked about this. I don't know if it was last podcast or two podcasts ago, where we talked about the average. You know, twelve months after the bottom is in. The challenge is we don't know when the bottom is in, right? Has it been put in yet or not? Give it to us, Jay. Tell us exactly when the, is the bottom in already? You calling it or give us the, the date the bottom's in. Yeah, that's what we don't know, right? Right. That's exactly what we do here. We tell you when the bottom's in. But I will tell you, right, since the since we did see those lows in early October, the market has been in this steady higher, high, higher low pattern. That I think there's a chance the low is in, right? I think there is definitely a chance that the market has the low in. And that would mean that we could potentially, and I just made the case why markets, you know, fundamentally can't go up. It could mean that, you know, by the time October comes around, market could potentially be, you know, notably higher than where it is today. You know, we're not that far off the lows. Uh, at the time of recording this, the markets, the S&P's 3970. You know, so that's about 10% higher off the lows, right? Just a little more than that. And yeah. I think there's a chance if, if the bottom was in, there's a lot more that we could go to the upside here. And we've definitely shown some support recently. We'll see if it holds. We've got a period of two weeks, which is kind of like the, uh, the, 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 the market's version of March Madness of what's coming up between CPI, PPI, jobs numbers, and the Fed meeting. A lot is going to be determined by that, uh, the rhetoric and the data that comes out. I've sort of ranted and raved about everyone going on TV and you know, I'm, I'm getting tired of it. Like they bring on 18 million people a day. Uh, I like when you're on Bloomberg, by the way, but it's, you know, only, <laughs> actually, I think Bloomberg does a, a good job of getting more analytical. They do. I, I like their data a lot better than other channels. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of them. I don't, I don't watch the other ones as much, but speaking of some of the other ones, like they bring on person after person. What do you think? Well, you know, it depends on your time horizon and you know, our base case is we could have slowing in the second half. Like, like you said, I mean, what do you do with that? And I also think people got spoiled from 2020 where it was so clear and obvious. We knew a recession was going to happen like three weeks before it happened. I mean, it was, it was the easiest recession ever to call. And I go back to everyone seems to be saying we're going to be in a recession. I'm of the opinion we might already be in one. It doesn't have to be a bad one. I always go back to 1990. It uh, wasn't that bad. And every recession doesn't have to be 1929 or 2008. But Jay, I'm sort of getting tired of this. I mean, we're market people and we look at this stuff, but does it really matter? I'm not sure the recession point really matters when it comes to how we're managing portfolios, right? No, I, I, I don't. I don't. I mean, it may add a little more fear. It might add volatility. For some of our strategies, that's good. For some, not so good. But I'm with you, Derek. What would you say at the beginning of the year when we looked at 28 analyst reports, right? Maybe it was the end of December. 27 out of 28 were predicting a recession. I mean, I can't think of a better, a better thing to shock people with than saying that we're not going to have a recession in 2023. But who knows? Right. It's rare that the crowd is always right. Well, remember, at the start of 2022, most analysts had market predictions of what, 4,700 to 5,000? Where, where was your fundamental data back then? Like, where was that margin and uh, earnings uh, and multiple data back then? Ah, well, it, 
Well, I looked at it. You know, we were over three times price to sales, which is massively, quote unquote, overvalued. The thing with markets that you and I understand and, and you know, people are really good at this. Markets can, I mean, it can trade at a high multiple. And that's why, you know, people say sometimes, all right, I'm going to go to cash because the market's too high. And then it runs for three more years. This this goes back to your point. Like, what is, and that's the thing. Like, let's say an analyst comes on one of these, these financial news networks and says, oh, I don't know, we're going to have a, a recession coming up in next month. Are they telling their clients to all go to cash? No, they're not. I doubt it. I shouldn't say I, I know that for sure. But, you know, most of the time, the, the key is to stay invested. I'm getting bored of it, Jay, because it's like, what do you do with that? And you know what? We were overvalued at the end of 2022, and 2021 was a great year. So, you know, go figure. I don't know what to do with this. I'm ranting out loud, Jay. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the recession. I got, I got, all right. Well, I'm tired, too. Let's move on. Yeah. Just get it over with. Just sell off. Do what you need to do, and let's let's be done with it, Jay. <laughs> You got seller's fatigue going on, right? I hear you. Well, and a lot of times that's good. I think people have moved away from fear and they're more in the apathetic phase. And that's normally pretty good. Uh, speaking of new highs, though, a couple odds and ends we want to cover. The uh, Who's this here? Charlie Bellello, hopefully I'm not mispronouncing his name, put out a chart on Twitter. S&P, uh, number of all-time highs by year. So this is kind of like, uh, if we look at 2021, how many times did the S&P 500 make a new high in price? 70 times it made a new high in 21. One time in 2022, of course, that was in uh, in January of 22. Of course, no, no new highs this year. Jay, I thought this was interesting because what you see, and the audience can't look at this, but I'll just, what you would see visually is you have these these periods of year after year after year, you have uh, a number of new highs in markets. And that would make sense. And bull markets make new highs all the time. And then you have some periods where you have not too long, but sometimes these long stretches where there aren't too many highs, new highs. 2001 to 2012, there were nine all-time highs made in 2007, but none in the other years. Um, I don't know, Jay. I mean, I just think this is kind of interesting to look at. And maybe this supports more of the sideways action. I don't know. Who knows? Well, look, I mean, I think it does two things. It illustrates that, you know, we had a, a pretty strong run the last decade within the markets because, you know, uh, I'm going to exclude 2022. But the years before that, we were making all-time highs, you know, consecutively regularly in 2013, 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, all of those years, we saw new market highs. And, you know, look, it's it, you get used to that. You get used to that growth. And, you know, even though you have positive years before that, like 2010, 2011, 2012, you still didn't make new highs. And so in those scenarios, you know, you can, you know, the all time high is an interesting number, right? It's a little skewed. I think if you were to look at this and say, how often did we get within 3% of an all time high and count that good enough for this kind of a data, I think it wouldn't look as stark. But there are absolutely periods where it takes a long time to recover, to get back to new highs. And once you have that momentum, it seems to stay by you, meaning the market, right? There's a great run from, you know, 89 through 2000, right, where you're having new highs every one of those years. So, look, it's, it's, I think it's interesting. I, you know, I don't know if it supports that we're going to be in a sideways market. I think it says, you know, it's rare when I'm looking at this to have, uh, uh, you know, like this, a long, long stretch. I mean, the stretch to get back from 1930 
took all the way to the to 53 to get to an all-time high. We didn't go through that. But what's not rare, Derek, is to have a year with zero all-time highs followed by the next year to have all-time highs. So you can have some like market slowdowns where you then get back to all-time highs again. I don't know. It's an interesting picture. I'd, I'd, I'm not sure if it really matters too, too much here. To me, it doesn't prescribe you know, any guarantee of what's to come. All right. Uh, last little tidbit, and then we'll get to our recommendations, is uh, he also put out a chart of number of large down days from 28 to 23. And this just says uh, he's got it nicely arranged in columns. When you have a minus 1%, 2%, or 3% day in a particular year, he counts them up. Uh, so far in 23, we've had nine, uh, eight of which negative 1% or more, and one minus 2% or more. Um, you know, look, I mean, last year we had 63 of these days. We've had a run of a couple of years in a row with some more volatility. Of course, 2017, there were four the whole year. Uh, again, I, I don't really have too much to comment on this. I think in you know a lot of years you have cert certain days, but as you said, over time, markets go up, right? That's it. All right, Jay. Uh, let's get to uh, last week. I gave a negative recommendation. This week, I have one, but I want to let you go first. Well, I, I definitely gave you know my good recommendations last week. I will tell you what I'm looking forward to, and uh, uh, don't judge me for this one. But uh, in a few weeks, John Wick Four comes out. Uh, my son and I are big John Wick fans, so I'm sure we will actually go to the theater to see that one. We saw John Wick 3 together in the theater. We'll probably go to see John Wick 4. And I think that's like March 24th, March 23rd. So just, you know, two weeks away, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. Yeah, it's a pre-recommendation. It's a pre-rec. I'm giving you a pre-recommendation. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that'll be good because I've been touting Succession the 26th. So you can kind of pair those as well. Uh, no, you know what? I like the first and second John Wick. I thought the third one was, eh. Oh, come on. There were some great scenes that the ax scene was awesome. I and, don't know. Right in the beginning. Yeah, all right. That right. You're, well, I we could disagree on that one, man. All day. I, I really like, I think, you know, Keanu Reeves. So it's sort of a similar role to when he was in the matrix, but at the same time, he, he is having this second, you know, resurgence as an action person, right? I guess. Why not? Hollywood can make somebody in their sixties looks like look like an action star. Um, I, I, have, you know, what? you can Google how many kills have been on screen in the John Wick movies. It's some ridiculous number. Maybe I'll Google it while you're giving your recommendation. Yeah, no, I'm sure that is. Uh, by the way, why didn't they have Keanu Reeves do? Uh, uh, what was the movie they remade with somebody else? Uh, with, he did the original with Pat, Point, Point Break with Patrick Swayze, which was a great movie. Um, if, you ha if you've never seen that, go see it. Like, well, Chris Hemsworth, like coming in, like that's not a bad swap out, right? Wasn't it? It's not. Why couldn't Keanu Reeves be in that, though? They couldn't have given him like a bit part. He's now the, you know, the lead of the FBI unit or something. Or maybe, he could, although at the end, well, I don't want to say what he did at the end of the first one in case people didn't see it, but... All right, my recommendation, I'm going to go back in time. And I saw, I rewatched a, a movie recently called The Next Three Days with Russell Crowe. And this came out in 2010. It's got Russell Crowe, Liam Neeson's in it, a bit part, Elizabeth Banks, Olivia Wilde. Uh, it's got a, a pretty good cast. I thought it was really good. Um, it's kind of one of those, 
how do I not ruin it? Russell Crowe has to pull off something. And he, he basically has three days to sort of plan it. And it's really good. It's suspenseful. And I rewatched it. So I don't know if you've seen that one before. Have you? I haven't, but I will, I will take a look. Next three days. All right. Um, that's my only recommendation this week. And no, nothing to pull back, Jay. I'm not canceling any any other recs. Uh, Jay, how are we doing? Any, any we have any data or are we good? Uh, so the, the John Wick data, they actually <laughs> give it kills per minute. So like John Wick 1, there was a kill every minute and 18 seconds. John Wick 2, a kill every 57 seconds. And John Wick 3, a kill every minute and 23 seconds. So I thought that was uh, it's an interesting way to gauge the number of uh, kind of on-screen, uh, uh, you know, kills with the with the bad guys. I want that in a spreadsheet with the minute by minute heat map, and uh, I'll expect that for next week's episode. I think we could run like a, like a nice oscillator, Derek. We could come up with a new indicator. A reg- we'll do a regression against the markets or something. All right, Jay, let's <laughs> leave it there. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk next week about whether that was good money or bad money spent by the New York Giants on our quarterback, but we simply don't have enough time to do that today. Jay, thanks again. Thanks, Derek.